Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. Hope you're enjoying your nest here in the courts of the Lord this morning. So this morning I plan to conclude this short series that I um, started several months ago. If you remember, I entitled it, What is a Conservative Mennonite Conserving? And I would like to... um, Yeah, conclude that and um, basically get right to that. Um, What are we trying to conserve? Why are we trying to conserve that? And what are some of the challenges of this conservation? Admittedly, what I will share this morning is an abbreviated list. It doesn't near do justice to the subject. And it is also admittedly my point of view, so I just want to get that out there. And um, hopefully you can be inspired, challenged, and um, consider um, yeah, what, our, what our future is here at, um, for us collectively as a church, uh, for us individually. And um, hopefully this short series has uh, stirred your minds um, homeward, heavenward, even though it is somewhat of a unique unique uh, title. So just a bit of review. If you remember the first, the first uh, time I, I took this subject on, I, I tried to help us see the logistics of what formed us. You, you remember that chart I put up there and so on. Last time I tried to point out to you uh, what formed us in the beginning of the 20th century. What, are, what were the things that came together what were some changes that happened that kind of um, made us who we were in the first 50 years of the 20th century? Toward the middle of the century, there was um, a, a divergence, and um, the larger arm of the Mennonite church went one direction, and the smaller arm, which we know of as the conservative Mennonite churches, went quite another. And I guess the, the, um, the challenge I think we have is was that a good move? I think we can answer that and say, in retrospect, it seems like it was. But further, are we, as we conserve things, is it what God would want us to do? Is it? Is it? Is that what it is? It's one thing to uh, hold tight to um, certain things, and it's another thing to um, truly, pointedly follow God the way He would have us follow Him in our generation. I would also like to say that, um, simply put, this is very simplistic, the, the conservative churches as we know them, basically were interested in conserving the paradigm that had evolved and somewhat come to define the Mennonites during the first half of the 20th century. As we look at this, at this um, subject this morning, um, I would like to emphasize this. As with any Monday morning quarterbacking, if you want to call it that, that takes place, we in our generation have a perspective of what happened then and what's happening now. And we can perhaps um, see things a bit more clearly, at least from a different perspective. And we can see clearly what was good and maybe what wasn't so good and what took place um, during those times. 
And so as we, as we do that, let's be honest enough to admit where there are flaws and also thankful for what we have. And, um, and I would like us to, again, I want to emphasize, I want this to be a time when, when there's resolution that, you know what, we're going to follow God. Just like Joshua in his day said, you know what, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It might take on just a slightly different shape as we move along from generation to generation, but at the end of the day, we will serve the Lord. The late 50s through the mid-70s were very defining years in the Mennonite church. There was increasingly two opposing schools of thought that were developing, and increasingly these two schools of thought were finding themselves in conflict with one another. To be very simplistic, one voice was embracing a very pietistic idea that it's really only the heart that matters after all, and practical applications of Bible principles as defined by the church are fairly minor in importance and perhaps in some ways really a hindrance to true Christianity. In the minds of these folks, um, they felt like that they wished to lay aside what they thought was Mennonite baggage and the hindrance to real spiritual progress. That was, that was one school of thought. The opposing voice uh, to what I would call the conservative mind, this reasoning seemed to these people to simply be a smokescreen to cover the age-old propensity of mankind to slouch toward the broad way. I really think it's safe to say that. To, I want to, I want to just emphasize this right now. To the credit of many of the, and I'm just going to use the terms conservative and progressive because it holds, you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not sure if there's better terms to use or not, but that defines what we're talking about this morning. To the credit, to their credit, the conservative voice by and large, stayed with their respective groups until the tension became so great that there was just no way the two could walk together anymore. In other words, what I'm saying is sometimes we perhaps get the idea that it was trivial things that um, that marked this division in the mid-century of the last century. Not really so. Most uh, Most people stuck with their churches until there was clear biblical... A fundamental um, doctrine of the Bible that was being violated, and they simply could not move ahead with that anymore. By and large, not always, perhaps, but I would say I would say mostly that would have been the the case. Things such as the, the acceptance of divorce and remarriage, and the cessation of of uh, wearing of the Christian woman's veiling, and um, television was another one that was a, a really big deal during those times. So what are some general observations of this movement? I just have a few things I want to I wanna lift out here real quick. For people that lived during that time, it was a momentous and life-altering experience. Um, I didn't live during those times, but I lived at one generation past that. And I can well remember, this is burned in my memory, uh, as a child listening to many speakers and people around the coffee table in their living rooms talking about these days. This was not an uncommon subject, and it, it was very—it was a very um, difficult time, and it made in, indelible marks on these people's lives. And it did another thing for these people. 
it um, it came it 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 made them people that zealously zealously guarded against anything that remotely smelled of what they considered apostasy. It did. Uh, maybe sometimes a, a trifle too zealously, but it sure it sure did that for them. Another thing uh, I will just point out that the impetus of this movement, uh, there was a congealing, and there was a real there was a real um, uh, every. In other words, everybody that was leaving the what, what they considered the apostasy of the day, they kind of had a common goal, and there was some unwritten. Um, understandings about what defined conservatism. Okay, fifty years later, <clears throat> I think those unwritten things aren't as well understood, and, and it's understandable. I mean, it's fifty years hence; we haven't lived through those times. Um, things that were really big deals in in the '60s perhaps don't seem to be quite as big a deal anymore. <clears throat> And as the conservative movement has taken shape and has hardened, it has become obvious that there are varying opinions among our, us as conservative people on what we really do want to conserve after all. Uh, there, is, there is that um, obvious, um, obvious disagreement at times. Where should, be boundary, where should boundaries be drawn? What is worth conserving? What is not worth conserving? I will also say this. Our conservative churches have become very much more homogenized than our Mennonite churches were in the in, a, in an earlier day, and this has simply been because of the point I just made previously. Rather than rather than um, us, okay, let me back up. So if you if you were if this was 1800, you'd be born in a certain place because the mode of transportation wouldn't be very great. You'd probably die in the same place, and so culture and the just the the dynamics of the times kind of meant that you kind of stayed put. You kind of went to your the same church that you were born in forever, and you kind of uh, understood the culture around you. And there wasn't a lot of influence from here, there, and everywhere else. In today's world. We have largely not become a people that meet together here, like in this body, because we all were born here geographically. In fact, very few of us were. Most of us have come in from another spot on the, in the United States or Canada, and we're here because we feel like this is a good place to be, and we are in agreement on what's a good thing to conserve and what isn't. So we, we have divided ourselves up a bit differently. Now, that's not all bad, but what it does do is it does open the door uh, for a lot more misunderstanding of one another. So if I come from Timbuktu and you come from Kalamazoo, and we did one thing over here in Timbuktu this way, and in Kalamazoo we did it that way, and we come together now, and suddenly we got to figure out which is better, this way or that. This can cause some problems sometimes, okay, as we try to find common ground. Also, we are now a people, just to emphasize again, who have not experienced the struggle that they, they experienced mid-century. And so um, it's easy for us to say, really, um, was that really a big a deal as they made it back then? Um, second guess. And um, that's not all bad, but it, that, that is the way we maybe sometimes, um, we don't see things quite from the perspective that they did uh, 50 years ago, say, or whatever.
Broadly speaking, and this is very broadly speaking, and probably not exactly to our um, to our um, flattery, uh, too many times this has opened the door for uh, the misunderstanding, the, the differences I just mentioned, has entered, has opened a door to um, far too many opportunities for schism and um, and so on. And, that, and I don't think that's a very great thing, but it has been the um, it has kind of been the dynamic that we've that we've uh, had to deal with. So my burden this morning is simply this: <clears throat> is to help us to honestly evaluate our conservation, our blind spots, things that maybe um, um, are things running smoothly, are they running roughly? Why are they running that way? I have three things that I want to bring to your attention that I believe that um, we are trying to conserve as conservative churches. Now, let, let me back up and say one thing, lest I forget. I, the, 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 the divergence that took place mid-century was not over, um, not much of it was over the fundamentals of the faith, such as as Mark mentioned on Wednesday night, we, we can all agree that one must believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved. Nobody would disagree with that stuff. There was a lot of fundamentals that I think uh, people could have said, "Yes, we agree." The two diverging sides, but it was some more. It was more the outworkings and how this worked out and fleshed out in everyday life that became somewhat the um, the reason for the for the divergence and. Uh, to one group, it seemed not important. To the other group, it seemed very important. So that's what I'm going to be uh, focusing on. And I don't want to be misunderstood that the conservative churches, i.e. our groups, are only concerned about these three things. Not at all. We're, we're very concerned that people have a true relationship with Jesus. We're very concerned about these things. And, but I'm not going to focus on that because if you waltz into practically any evangelical um, church this morning, you get the same answer. Yes, we are concerned that people understand what it is to be saved and to be uh, to have that relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to lay that aside as a given that we get that. So what are three things that I would say we are trying to uh, conserve? I'll give them to you now, and then I'll then I'll visit them a bit uh, more in depth. So I would say, as I have as I have read and gathered, um, one of the things that was in jeopardy was brotherhood accountability and church discipline. So the conservative group said that's important. The other side said not so much. The other two more um, biblical separation. What is biblical separation? What isn't it? Or is it important? And what is the place of tradition? Is that important or is it important? Let's look at these three things. So what about the working reality of an accountable brotherhood and responsibility of the church to put forth an effort to maintain purity as much as possible? If you're going to do that, that will inevitably require church discipline and censure at times. And the extreme opposite of that is rabid individualism, where the church virtually has no real meaning in a person's life and brotherhood accountability is non, non-existent. That's the, that's the two options that one has. And both of those can be carried to a dire extreme. All these points that I have made, there's a, there's a happy middle. And finding that happy middle is what gets to be the challenge. 
It is no, there's no doubt if one will take the time to read the book of 1 Corinthians and the letters to the seven churches in Revelation that God has vested the church with the authority and the responsibility to keep a disciplined body. I don't think we would dispute that this morning. What I have found interesting is that the true church throughout history has embraced this idea. Um, the fact that we sit here and and have to make a point of talking about this speaks to the generation that we live in where that's not really how it's done anymore. And the fact that a church would have the audacity to think it can do that puts him up for question. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the man Albert Muller. He is a historical theologian and the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a bona fide Baptist, in other words. I was interested to read a... Um, a uh, series he wrote on the Southern Baptist, or I shouldn't say the Southern Baptist, but the Baptist in general, on church discipline here recently. And I'm going to read to you verbatim of what he says. Now, this is the Baptist. It says, The Baptists leave a particularly instructive record of church discipline in the 19th century. The church held regular days of discipline when the church would gather to heal breaches in the fellowship, admonish wayward members, rebuke the obstinate, and if necessary, excommunicate excommunicate those who resisted discipline. To the antebellum, or that word simply means pre-Civil War, Baptist, a church without discipline would hardly have been considered a church. Now the thing that um, I found so interesting is this is not a Mennonite, this is not speaking about Mennonites, this is Baptist, okay? The point I'm trying to make is this was at one time pretty broad, the, the idea of an accountable brotherhood and a, and a disciplined church. It's also very important that it's not a new thing in the, to the Mennonites either. Um, one writer put it this way. He said, um, what grace was to Luther and the sovereignty of God was to Calvin, the church and brotherhood accountability was to the Anabaptist. I thought that was very interesting. And I will grant you, as I've already mentioned, this is a very tedious exercise. There is clear New Testament teaching that there is room for the body to set specific standards that the body will abide by. And it is equally clear that it is very easy for that to get out of hand and go places it never was intended to go. It is a very, very delicate tightrope to walk. And it's probably one of the most difficult things for the true body of believers to define is where do these two lines cross? What merits discipline and where should grace be shown? Historically, um, responding to the pressures of the generation, and I'm talking of uh, of the early 1900s, and that basically was more exposure to the world, and perhaps being more influenced by evangelical fundamentalism than they realized, the church mid-century was quite zealous and specific in their quest for maintenance of purity. For some reason, about mid-century, this interest began to wane, and the church lost its resolve to maintain a disciplined brotherhood. Members that were in clear violation of church order and moving very quickly towards very clear biblical violation 
were tolerated and in many cases actually defended. And needless to say, this type of stress brings, uh, or this type of atmosphere brings a lot of stress to the church, and it did. And so, to this end, the conservative church has endeavored to keep this, um, the, the disciplined brotherhood, the accountable brotherhood, the church and the individual in proper tension. This is what we're attempting to conserve, and it's not been easy. And we've not all ended up on the same page on all of this, but that is an attempt. Our generation's challenge, I believe, is to maintain an accountable brotherhood and exercise church discipline, and then to practice tolerance, love, forbearance, where that's needed as well. All right, number two. How about a biblical, practical separation from the world? I'm going to quickly read to you some verses from the Bible that uh, we are all familiar with, but perhaps we should just refresh our memory. Romans 12, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 1 John 2, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not with him. 2 Corinthians 6, wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and don't touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Revelation 18, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So again, the idea of separation of the world has been a long hallmark of Christians through the, through the ages, and Mennonites um, as well. Persecution in the early days had a very, very... Um, it, it very easily separated the sheep from the goats. It, that was not a hard, a hard call to make. And even, as I mentioned last time, the frontier life had a, had a very unique way of keeping separation front and center and easily defined. Um, if you speak German and your neighbor speaks French, uh, that inevitably puts up a little barrier there. Just, just that small thing. We're not even trying here. That's just the way it is. And then there's other, there's other things too, but it was, it was a bit more easy. But again, as we reach the late 1800s, early 1900s, it, it feels like that's not quite as easy anymore. And so it, it, the, the church during that era felt it necessary to be a bit more defining in what exactly is meant by practical separation. And I'm, one of the things, and this is no surprise to you and it's no news to you, and it's something that we don't speak to often because it's so difficult to speak to, but how many of you have ever, especially you, you ladies, have been in town and somebody has approached you and said, you Amish? Now why did they say that? They said it for one reason, because of the way you were dressed. Okay, so, dress issue was a front and center thing during the early part of the last century. Again, nothing new, but the dynamics maybe were ramped up a little bit. Meadow Simons, if you read his works, he spoke scathingly of of the um, pompous and accursed wantonness, as he called it, in matters of dress and the activities of that day. In 1568, in Strasbourg, there was a a church discipline, which is, is the earliest one that I can figure out that we have any record of, and I'm going to read you Article 21 of that 1568 discipline, just to just to prove to you that this has always been kind of a kind of a front burner issue. 
It says, The brethren and sisters shall remain steadfastly by our present standard of regulations concerning apparel and make nothing for pride's sake. Furthermore, shaving off the beard and trimming of the hair in stylish ways shall not be permitted. So that was their statement. So obviously we haven't conserved everything or we all be bearded here this morning. Okay, so um, Alex, one up for you. <laughs> well, the positive pressure of community and accepted tradition um, kept was enough for the church for many years, but again, pressures of the early 1900s changed things a bit. But again, by mid-20th century, there seemed to be a largely a losing of the desire for practical Christianity in this area. And um, I won't bore you with the details, but if you read writings during those times, it becomes very, very uh, obvious that this was a very tentious issue, very tentious. And it worked its way into things like the mission field. Here in the United States, um, the wedding ban has always been something that was viewed taboo. In India, they were allowing um, the gals over there to wear bracelets, which were practically the same thing. So you had these tensions that just kept coming along. And there was this constant bombardment that this thing is being overdone, etc., etc. And I'm going to read to you a, a quote from George R. Brunk in a chapel address to Eastern Mennonite College in October of 1950. And uh, I just find this quote fascinating, and I, I think it has proven to be somewhat prophetic. He says this, and this is verbatim what he says, One of the biggest factors in forming my, on my conviction on this question of dress is the example of those who have lost it to see how far away from the truth that they have gone and have been made conscious of the fact that there seems to be no stopping place. I venture to guess that if the Mennonite church in America loses its distinctive dress, it will become one of the most worldly and ungodly of denominations. Now that's just a guess. That was his, um, that was his quote. Well, I'm going to quickly just... Um, jog our thoughts here a little bit, some things we must consider. Consider this. What we, do, what we wear does speak volumes about the message we wish to present. Do I need to tell you that? Uh, read the ads in the, in the, in the next Kohl's um, flyer you get. In other words, if you go down town tomorrow or sit next Saturday and you, you pass a church, and in that church there's gals out there with short shorts and tank tops doing a car wash. Do you immediately say, oh, I think maybe that might be part of the Midwest Fellowship? You, you don't think that. And why don't you think that? It's for one and only one reason. Because what, what is being portrayed there in that parking lot does not line up with what you know about Midwest Fellowship. See, So it does, it does send a message. We have to just admit that. We also have to admit that our clothes and demeanor also act as an identity. Uh, that's why Masons are um, willing to wear these goofy skirts that they wear on formal occasions. I wouldn't be caught dead in one, but they'll wear them to church. Okay? It's because it's an identity thing. This past spring, I was at the Agernews show, and I don't know why I'm always running into interesting people at the Agernews show, but there was this guy here that um, he had a booth and he was selling coverall um, building 
uh, tops or whatever. And I knew mine's getting kind of shook, and I thought, well, I, I should talk to, to him, see what he has to offer. And so I went up to him and approached him, and I saw him from Iowa, and he sure looked like a Mennonite to me. He just did. And I'm like, what are the chances that this man is, you know, from Cologne or whatever, you know? And again, it was one simple reason. It was the way he looked. One reason. So we were talking, and you know, we're talking, he's talking. After a while, he goes, any chance you're a Mennonite? Uh, yeah, you, know, you, you nailed it. And um, he's, I said, what are the chances you are? I said, I'm an apostolic. And I was like, wow. You know, there again, I was, I was just so blessed that, you know, we were both there thinking, hey, this, this guy's a Mennonite. He didn't end up being one, but he still, I believe, was a Christian man. And it was one reason. It was, it was the way he presented himself. So it is an identity. And I do think it, all, it is also a very great revealer of the heart. I just really do. Uh, what we wear speaks about who we are and what we want to present. But let's be fair. There's some potential problems that go along with this. If the church codifies everything in regards to clothing, people will soon begin to develop the attitude that if the church doesn't speak to it, it's okay. And that's not right. If you go down that road, you end up with a book the size of a Sears catalog and you still won't have hit it all. So that, that, that can't be, you, you can't go down that road. You also have to realize that there is indeed room for personal taste. And some people like some colors, some people don't. There has to be some room for that. What is the latitude of deference and difference? How much can it be and where should it be drawn? And there's certainly nothing wrong with neat. Uh, godliness does not mean unattractive. Beautiful and modesty do fit nicely in the same sentence. So my point is, um, what are we trying to conserve? I think we're trying to conserve a decent image of what godliness should be in regards to this matter of dress, and at the same time realizing that we can get way, way, way too tunnel-visioned on this to the exclusions of other things that really do matter. And I, we have seen that. We have seen that problem where, where churches get this tunnel vision that separation is defined strictly by dress. That's not the case. It, it goes into so many different areas. Paul put it this way. He said, I don't care whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Can we, can we be, can we be people in the next 50 years that understand the holistic, um, program and the perspective of separation. Sure, it will be what you wear. But it will be a lot of other things as well. Can we, can we all agree with that? I hope we can. At the end of the day, put yourself under the microscope of God. Does this thing I'm going to do, is this thing I'm going to wear, is this thing I'm going to purchase, is this thing I'm going to, you fill in the blank, does it glorify God? If it glorifies God, chances are it is showing to the world that truly I am a different kingdom. And I hope that's where we find ourselves. I guess I'll take the time to mention this. <clears throat> it's no news to you either that in the larger scope of the conservative Mennonite churches, there has been a very wide array of where this line should be drawn in this, in this idea of separation. It's no news to you. 
our particular brand, if you will, of conservative churches has is attempting to find a good balance between the church will speak to this, but we will give personal latitude for that. I think that's what we're trying to do. The only way this will work, and the only way we will find ourselves on the right side of history 50 years from now, if we take that approach, is if we are willing to think for ourselves. End of story. There has been too many people that have been conditioned to let other people do their thinking for them. We can't be those kind of people. We have to think for ourselves. We have to. Okay, let's move on. The third thing I mentioned that we're trying to conserve is the value of tradition. And first of all, I want to look at the value. Being conservative, the very word by its definition, means that we will be somewhat traditional. And this will cause some of us to recoil and raise our hackles. But at the end of the day, there's nothing inherently wrong with tradition. All tradition is, biblical tradition, is that someday, somewhere, somebody picks up the Bible and he reads it and he says, you know what, this is going to have an effect on my life and I'm going to make a, a decided change in this area that this is the way it's going to be. This is how I'm going to apply that principle to my life. And he teaches his children that that's a good way. And they said, yep, that's right. 50, 60, 100 years hence, they're still saying, you know what, that was a really good tradition that great-great-grandpa came up with way back when. That's all tradition is. In its, at its finest, that's tradition. And in the world's venue, I find it interesting that... Uh, Tradition is kind of like a badge on the shoulder. How many times have you gone into a restaurant or something and it said, a tradition since 1875, you know, whatever. And it's like, wow, you know, that's, this is great. This is a, a tradition. But the minute tradition is applied to churches, boy, hackles go up and it's like, ooh, we can't have that. That's, that's a terrible thing. Well, consider these three, three verses first of all. Therefore, brothers, stand fast and hold to the traditions that you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle, Second Thessalonians 2. First Corinthians 11. Now I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances, which is the exact same word that is translated traditions in Second Thessalonians. So you could say you keep the traditions as I have delivered them to you. Second Thessalonians 3. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition that ye received from us. So the big advantage of a tradition is simply this. <clears throat> every generation doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. You find a way that works and you go with it. Now the challenge, <clears throat> the, to, the, the counter of that, is that in Mark 7, Jesus speaks very specifically to tradition. He says, you make the word of God of non-effect through your tradition. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold to the tradition of men, such as the washing of pots and cups and many other things ye do. So there we have. The Bible is very clear that there is a real tension here uh, on this matter of tradition. How do we hold proper biblical tension between solid tradition and when tradition becomes a stumbling block? We absolutely cannot conserve things that are becoming detrimental to our relationship with the Lord and our witness simply because they're a tradition. We can't do that. I'm going to read to you, um, some of you may have heard of Dorcas Smucker. She's written several books. Um, she's a very interesting writer, keeps a blog, and so on. And she had this, um, she had this little uh, write-up on tradition 
And uh, this is simply her take on it, but I thought she nailed it pretty. I liked her thought. I'm going to read it to you. The older I get, the more fond I become of tradition. Things that may have agitated me one time as stupid now seem to have purpose and meaning. After all, that is what tradition provides, something familiar and solid to fall back on, decided by a group rather than one confused individual. A message that this is where I belong, this is what we do here, this is who we are. I I thought that was very well put. I'm going to read you another um, quote on tradition, this by Wendell Heatwell at a forum he took uh, part in in 2013, and I thought he he had some very good words too, and I'm going to read this to you as well. Tradition by itself is wholly inadequate and easily contributes to inconsistencies as time separates practice from principle. Where the emphasis is primarily on the externals of the Christian life, the group tends to perpetrate itself, perpetrate these outward forms by the process of social conditioning rather than giving insight and understanding of these traditions with the purpose of securing voluntary acceptance. The blind conformity to social group, even though it is the church, can result in stagnation and sterility. And I I hope I don't have to um, explain that, but basically what he's saying is, if you want tradition to be meaningful, you have to give it meaning. You can't just say, this is our tradition and you're going to do that because you're here. That's not going to work very well. There has to be a reason and has to be given for tradition. He goes on to say this, yet tradition is not without merit in that at its best it can provide accumulated wisdom and stability. To be effective, the accumulated wisdom of tradition needs to both be refreshed and respected. It is refreshed by each successive generation appreciatively thinking through what has been handed to them, holding to what is good, adding their own godly wisdom, and making it their own through thought and not just mere convention. It is respected by recognizing that those who have walked this way with God before us have had something of value, I'm sorry, before us may have something of values to contribute to our own walk. Respect for tradition is enhanced through the refreshing project. And I don't think I can really add to that. I think he put that so succinctly and so well. So much more could be said, but tradition in its proper place is helpful. Tradition, when it is not in its proper place, can be the the downfall of Christianity. Never forget that. And it is our job and our generation to figure out what to hold to, what not to, and to do that thoughtfully, prayerfully, and in a godly way. I'm going to conclude with two challenges for us. Some of the most pressing challenges that I think we have today in teaching and maintaining a pure religion that the next generation and the world about us finds compelling is to recognize it is of God and not just a culture. I'm going to read to you um, three verses, all out of 2 Timothy. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Hold fast the form of sound words which ye have heard of me in faith and in love which is in Jesus Christ. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Do you get the, the, the theme in those three verses? Paul says, 
I taught you this. It's a good thing. And here's why I think you should think it's a good thing. Just look at me. Now that seems a little bit, that seems a little bit, um, um, most of us would kind of shy away from looking at that, saying that. But what he's saying is, the thing I'm teaching you is what I practice. Does my walk line up with what I'm teaching you? Do you think it's a godly walk? The point is simply this, people. Part of the reason that some of our churches have struggled in promoting true godliness is because the talk and the walk do not line. You try to pass on godly tradition, you try to pass on biblical values, and you have not overcome some of the most heinous um, uh, sins of the Spirit, and they're listed in, uh, in the Bible. I won't go there. But you're involved in things that... Um, should not be, and we all know that, and there's no argument, it's biblical, and we cover this all up with a facade of some sort of a cultural tradition, it won't work, your children will not find it compelling, and neither will the world, they'll see right through that sham. That's a very, very, um, we need to think very, very carefully about that. Number two. Because of the experiences that have formed the conservative church, it has made us cautious and slow to change. We have tried to be aware of where these trends will leave, and this is, a, a, again, a very, very difficult tightrope to walk. How does one know if he makes this change where it will, make, where it will lead in 20 years? Can we, can we know that? Sometimes we can't know until the 20 years have expired, and then it's too late. Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, when the wind blows from the west, he's talking to the Pharisees, he said, you, you say it's going to rain. And when it's found the south, you say there's going to be heat. He said, you hypocrites, you can define the weather, but you cannot, def you cannot define what will bring true spirituality to you, to you and your, your families. Now, that's in my words. I read over that recently, and I just stopped and I thought about that. I thought, you know what? There's a lot to be learned here. We have to be astute enough and, and spiritually engaged enough to, to, to reckon with where trends lead. Where will, this, where, where will these things take us? On the other hand, does every time the wind blows out of the south means there's going to be heat? Not always. There's nothing colder than a south wind, the north end of a south wind in Minnesota. You know that. Does it mean every time the winds from the east is going to rain in Minnesota? Not always. In other words, it doesn't always follow that pattern. But we have to we have to think through when is the east wind telling me it's going to rain? All right, I could say more, but I have to stop. Are we perfect churches? No way, we're not perfect. We may as well just get up and admit that and be done with it. Are there better options out there? I don't know. There could be. There might be. There could be better options. Is this church a good option? It better be. If it's not a good option, we may as well go home. I guess, I guess I've been a little bit, um, I don't know, somewhat um, disheartened lately. It seems like there's a, um, there's some sort of a twisted Oh, I better be careful what I say here. I think people mean well, but it seems like there's been an entertaining sector of people who have, largely it's people that have, have left our churches for one reason or another, and I'm not, I'm not here to say that it's been 
it's not been sometimes in their minds justified and understandably maybe so. But do we need to spend a lot of time just bashing and bashing and bashing how terrible our churches are and how, how horrible they are? Can we not look at the, at the bright side? Can we not look at the, at the things that are going well? Can we not take the things that need improved and improve them rather than just simply taking out the 50-pound sledge and just going after it? It seems to me there's a better way. I also wonder if somebody would have went up to a person in 1960 that was pushing for some of the change that obviously didn't turn out well and would have said, you know what, you continue down that track and eventually your colleges will be ousted from the Evangelical Association of Colleges because they're too liberal to fit in anymore. I bet he said, no way, no way. That's exactly what happened in 2015 to Goshen and EMC. My point is, Things simply have consequences, and sometimes we don't know what they are until 50 years hence. That's difficult, but it should be sobering. Is there, is there, is there, um, is there good potential in our conservative churches? Absolutely there is. But I tell you what, it's not going to be without us expending capital in our generation rather than living off the interest of the last. We have to remember that. We have to put skin in the game. We have to be biblical. And we have to, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we have to take a look at the wheel and we have to grease it every now and then. And I hope that's what we're doing. What is your vision for the church? What is my vision for the church? I can tell you one thing. The Lord's coming back one of these days and there's going to be a church. The question is, are you and I going to be in it?